Okay, well, good morning. We're going to be looking at First Samuel chapter 2, that's Hannah's prayer, and also at Isaiah 48. So let's just, uh, let's just start with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you seeking for you and seeking through your word to, to know you, to forge a relationship with you, to be assured of your love to us and the extent of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, please be with us as we reflect upon these ancient scriptures and give us your strength and your wisdom and insight. Father, speak to each of us as we need from your word and trigger the right thoughts and the right devotions, and we pray for the strength to carry out that which we resolve. Father, please go with each of us for the sake of the Lord Jesus and all that he achieved. Amen. Well, you really need to have Professor Samuel 2 open in front of you. And uh, this is, of course, Hannah's prayer. You remember in 1 Samuel chapter 1 that she was uh, the second wife to Elkanah, and she has uh, a, f a fellow wife called uh, Penina, who has lots of kids, and uh, this Penina is rotten to Hannah, and Hannah comes to the, the sanctuary and prays, and Eli thinks she's drunk, but she's talking to God in her heart, and God says through Eli, yes, you will have a child, and she goes and uh, has this child, and now she, she comes and uh, gives this prayer of thanks. And in studying the scriptures, it's very difficult, I, I think, to come to any given passage of scripture as if this is my first time, to achieve a second naivety. Reminds me of a, a book called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. It's very difficult to really, as it were, uh, come to a passage of scripture having got rid of all our previous ideas about it and just letting the scripture talk to us. And that's what I am trying to do in looking at this chapter. Because we're going to come to a few conclusions which suddenly I have not come to before in, in looking at this. And I, I just share them with you. Okay, let's start off in verse 1. She starts off by saying, my, my heart rejoices in the Lord. And of course you notice in chapter 1, verse 13, she spoke in her heart. Uh, she was praying in, in her heart. And it shows how far apostate Israel were, that the idea that you could pray to God without actually speaking out loud was uh, not even understood by the priest, Eli. That's uh, in passing. If you worry that you're living in an unspiritual environment, well, so was Hannah and Samuel. And she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. Now, <clears throat> she identifies, as is quite normal, with her son and the hopes that she had for him. And the anointed uh, of God, you see in verse, uh, in verse 10, uh, she talks about how God will exalt the horn of his anointed. Um, so then, my horn is exalted in the Lord, and yet God is going to exalt the horn of his anointed, his Christ. I suggest that putting that together, she had the hope that her son would actually be a messianic figure. And at the end of verse 1, I rejoice in your salvation. Uh, the Hebrew word is basically what we would call Jesus. I rejoice in Yah's salvation. Yehoshua, Jesus. I rejoice in, in your Jesus. And I think this is why Mary, mother of Jesus, alludes to this prayer of Hannah when she thanks God, when she actually becomes the mother of Messiah. I think that's why her prayer is full of allusion back to these words that we've got before us in 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's prayer. 
Now, <clears throat> Hannah's hope and prayer was for her son Samuel to be the horn of Yahweh the Anointed One. And yet it was, of course, David who was the Anointed One and was anointed by Samuel later on in Samuel's life. And it was to David that the promise of Christ was given, who would have an exalted horn, Psalm 89, 24. This is all messianic uh, language about David and the son of David. Psalm 112, verse 9, that's quoted in 2 Corinthians 9, 19, uh, part of the verse, and the verse goes on to say, his horn shall be exalted. This is talking about Messiah. Psalm 92, verse 10, is significant. My horn, David says, you have exalted. I was anointed with fresh oil by Samuel. So what are we to make of all this? Hannah prays that all this will be true of her son, but it is only ultimately true of David and David's son. And yet David was anointed by Samuel. So he played a part in this. And straight away you take a lesson there that God can answer prayer, not actually to the letter, but the essence of it. And God answered the essence of her prayer, not specifically what she asked about Samuel, but the essence of it was answered in the fact that Samuel did anoint uh, David. And so it seems to me that with our prayers, we know not what to pray for as we ought, as Paul says. And yet God sees the essence. He sees the spirit within the prayer, and he will answer that. And I'm sure if you look back in your experience of answered prayer, you will see that. Many times you end up thanking God for not answering your prayers. But he, prayer is heard, but the essence of it is what is heard. Now, go on in verse 1. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies. There is in Hebrew an intensive plural, whereby the plural is used to emphasize the one great thing. For example, one of the messianic prophecies, you read about the bloods, plural in the Hebrew, of Messiah. Well, there's only one blood. What it means is the great blood. And so this idea of my enemies, it can equally be my great enemy. And who was Hannah's great enemy? Back in chapter 1, verse 6, her adversary, her enemy, was Peninnah. And this same individual here um, in verse 5 is described as she that has had many children. Well, that's Peninnah, is it not? We would surely expect in this prayer thankfulness to God that she's got this child and the past is behind her and she can get on. But actually, and this is the bit where, where I talked about getting a second naivety and coming to Scripture fresh, trying to read this through just as it stands, without our preconceptions, etc. The majority of this prayer is Hannah ranting and raving against Peninnah, and it's not in very nice language. Now, Peninnah had abused her. We know that from chapter 1 that she had provoked her, she teased her, she'd been absolutely beastly to her, and there's no attempt on my part to justify that. But what it seems to me is, happens is that when somebody is abusive to another, when somebody does not act as they should, then the, the abused party often falls into failure themselves 
in that. They become so obsessed with this person that they end up creating that person in their own minds as a larger-than-life figure and demonizing them into something that is worse than they actually are. Now, as I say, I'm not justifying Penina, but reading through this, this prayer of Hannah, that, it seems to me, is what happens. And she says, verse 1, my mouth is enlarged. That's not a pleasant expression. It's used about boasting and arrogance. Psalm 35, 21, they opened their mouth wide against me. They said, aha, my mouth is enlarged. Same Hebrew term. Isaiah 57, verse 4, against whom do you sport yourselves? Against whom do you enlarge your mouth and stick out the tongue? It's not a pleasant, a pleasant term. So this is very much a prayer or a song of taunting uh, and bitter triumph over Penina. It's not exactly Hannah at her best. And this is the problem with us religious people. We who have our prayers amazingly answered, whose faith is rewarded even in this life, we have a tendency to think that our spirituality entitles us to this kind of behavior against the less spiritual or the unspiritual. And this wasn't all just said by Hannah off the cuff. This is a prayer, and it's actually in poetry. So I think she had the opportunity to sort of hone it and edit it somewhat. I mean, verse 3, talk no more, she says in the Hebrew words, dabar, rabar. There's all sorts of wordplay, alliteration, etc. This is poetry. So she did have the chance to kind of uh, edit it out a bit, and she doesn't. Verse 3. She has the theory right. The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And because of that, Penina was not, verse 3 at the beginning, was not to talk so proudly as she had done, because God judges actions. So Hannah's got the theory absolutely right. She sees the parallel between words and actions. Don't talk so proudly, because God judges actions. So words are seen as actions by God, as the Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount makes clear. But, of course, in the world in which we live, words are very cheap. It's okay to say all sorts of things, but it's not okay to do them. Whereas in God's judgment, that is quite different. The words, the thoughts even, are as the action. And I think we never, to the end of our lives, really understand that, and maybe that's why we need the Day of Judgment, to make us realize that, to what extent that is true. So, in essence, the process of judgment is going on now. We make the answer now. The weighing up of every human thought, work, word, action is going on right now. And God weighs this because he has knowledge. Because uh, God is a God of knowledge, therefore he can weigh actions and words. The idea of God weighing them implies, of course, he puts them in a balance. But the obvious question is, well, what's the other side of the balance? What is the other side of the balance? I think it means that God recognizes that human action, human words, etc., have something to balance them. In other words, if you do something wrong, speak something wrong, there is a reason. The trendy term for that these days is situational ethics. Yes, he did it and it was wrong, but he did it because, blah, blah, blah. 
And we sense, do we not, as we keep on encountering human failure and as we read about judgments in court for various terrible actions, we sense, do we not, that there is a situational ethic. The problem is, we cannot make that call ourselves because we don't have full knowledge. But because God is a God of knowledge, of ultimate total knowledge, therefore he can weigh actions and words. This person did that, and he shall be condemned for that. Another guy did the same, but he shall not be. Because God sees the balance. He sees what's the other side of the scale. You've got situations like David and uh, Uzzah. They both, both those kings, acted as priests. And David's commended for it pretty well. He'd been told to do it, although he was not uh, from Levi. He was from Judah. And Uzzah, it, is not, it does not pertain to you to offer incense. And he's condemned and made a leper because of it. So the same action is judged differently by God because he knows what's in the other side of the scale. But because we do not have that total knowledge, therefore we cannot judge. And that is why we are not to judge. Now, although Hannah knows that, and we're grateful to her for bringing it out here, but she, like, again, like a lot of religious people, she totally... Uh, doesn't get it because she goes and does the very opposite thing that she's not supposed to do, that is to judge. Um, and I think in what she's, when she thinks that she can utter these judgments, I think she's alluding a bit to Rachel. See, in Genesis 30 verse 6, when Rachel, she's in the same position, okay, she's uh, in a marriage, in a polygamous marriage, and Leah has all the kids and Rachel can't get pregnant, just the same situation, and then she has a child, and she calls it Dan, which means judgment, because she says, Genesis 30, verse 6, that God has given me a favorable judgment in hearing my prayer. Well, Dan ended up outside the tribes of Israel. He's not listed in the list there in Revelation. And uh, Rachel's own spirituality, in my opinion, was somewhat doubtful. And I think Hannah sees herself a bit as Rachel and thinks, well, yeah, my prayer was answered, I've, I've had a child, therefore I can judge. But she can't. We've got to understand that in Hebrew culture, the idea of uttering blessings and cursings was taken very seriously. If you uttered cursings, it was really felt that these things would actually happen to the person that you had cursed. And that's why there's all this ridiculous uh, running around by Jacob and Esau to try to get the words of blessing off their father Isaac, when actually those words of blessing, it seems to me, were not really anything. They were just sort of, wish you all the best, guys. Um, but they felt that there was something in them that would definitely come true. And so I see a lot of what's going on in this uh, prayer as Hannah wishing death and destruction upon, uh, uh, upon Peninnah because she thinks that God has judged me right because he answered my prayer gave me a child. The fact God answers your prayer does not therefore mean that you are justified. You just got to think about that. Any kind of spiritual pride and uh, seeking to, to take judgment into our own hands is absolutely wrong. Now, verse 4 The bows of the mighty men are broken, they that stumble are girded with strength. Um, <clears throat> like in, in verse uh, 10, the adversaries of the Lord, well, in chapter 1, verse 6. Peninnah is Hannah's adversary. 
Um, so she's saying, if you're my enemy, then you're God's enemy. And that doesn't necessarily follow. You know, your, uh, my enemy must be God's enemy. That's not necessarily the case. Uh, the adversaries of the Lord, the great adversary, I suggest another intensive plural, Penina, uh, shall be broken to pieces out of heaven, shall God thunder upon them, etc. This is her really wishing judgment and destruction and agony upon Penina. And it's so unchristian. And yet, as I said, looking through Mary's prayer, it's full of allusion to Hannah's prayer. So Mary took the positive out of all this. And I think that's a great example to us because we continually meet with people in our church life, our ecclesial life, who are less than spiritual. And yet no one is a complete you know, demon, uh, as it were. Um, there is something good in all our brothers and sisters. And I think it's great that Hannah zoomed in and focused upon that. And uh, we'll come back to that theme a bit later. So verse 4, the bows of the mighty men are broken. This uh, Hebrew word, gibor, which really means the mighty one. As I say, it's an intensive plural. And bows and arrows in the, in the Hebrew thought were metaphor for your children. Even the Psalm 127 about the man who's got a quiver full of arrows, his children. So she seems to be wishing judgment that all Hannah's children would be broken or crushed, as, as the Hebrew means. Now, it could be that disaster struck Penina, but I don't think so. That's not recorded in the text. This is Hannah wishing this upon her. And then she talks in military sort of language there in verse uh, 4, the mighty, the, the mighty warrior, as she imagines Penina, is broken. And they that stumbled, and this is a word that's used about uh, fleeing, soldiers fleeing because of divine judgment upon them. Leviticus 26, 37, 2 Chronicles 25, 8. Um, people, soldiers fleeing because of divine judgment. And she sees that that's her, but now she says, I have risen up, I'm girded with strength. And the great warrior Penina has fallen. All this military metaphor, I think she has come to see this struggle between her and Penina as, sadly, uh, a war, as a battle. This is a trouble when relationships break down. It ends up a war, that every word, every movement is seen as an act of aggression. And yes, the other side may at times be wrong and aggressive, but... I think she's made the mistake of, of developing the whole thing in her mind to the point where this is an, an absolute all-out war. And she's like another soldier fighting against this, this evil Penina. Now, we see the same situation actually with Sarah. She was also barren. And there was another woman in the family, Hagar. And uh, once Sarah has Isaac, then she gets totally nasty with Hagar and chucks her out into the wilderness to die. And I, I've seen the same in uh, some African families that I've known, polygamous families. People that I have visited maybe every year, even a couple of times a year, over a number of years. And yes, there's the, the, the wife there who can't have kids and you feel very sorry for her and even the other wives feel sorry for her. And yes, they do uh, rib her about it at times and at times she perceives that she's being ribbed when she isn't and so forth and then she has a, a child and man she becomes the most 
awful person. I've seen this. So the suggestion that I'm making about uh, this prayer, list of curses really, of uh, this ranting of Hannah in bitterness against Penina, that, that's true to life. That's psychologically likely in any case. Verse 5, they that were full, and again I think this is an intensive plural, referring to the great super fool, Penina. And later on in the verse, I think you have that confirmed. The parallel is, she, singular, who has many children. They that were full have hired themselves out for bread. That's the language of prostitution. She's saying that you who had so many kids, you're going to sell your second-rate body as a prostitute just to get bread. I wish that upon you. That's terrible. That's terrible to say that. And this is a spiritually-minded woman. But again, that, that is true to human experience, at least true to my experience, that's, that's true to life, it's psychologically likely. That's what happens with religious, spiritual people. They are capable of the worst, the worst things and the most bitter, awful behavior against those whom they consider have done wrong and who have done wrong. Penina undoubtedly was in the wrong. This is the problem. This is the problem, and it's a problem that has plagued our community, whereby people think that because we have the truth, that because we are spiritual, so they think, therefore and thereby I am justified in the, in the toughest, most nasty language and behavior against those with whom I differ, and those who are actually wrong. And the baron, she says, verse 5, that's her, has borne seven could be that she felt Samuel was as good as seven sons, but in verse 21 you read that she did actually go on to bear another five children. So she had five plus Samuel makes six. So actually, if she, if she was thinking, yeah, now I've had one kid, I'm going to have seven, the Hebrew idea of total perfection of blessing, um, well, actually God stopped her short at six, one short of seven. And you just wonder whether there's something in that, God's message to her. So verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive, he brings down to the grave and brings up. I think that she's talking about how she felt that without children it was as if she was dead. She felt that she was this soldier fleeing under divine judgment. Now barrenness is not a divine judgment. She had picked up all these ideas from her culture around her when it was not the case. But all the same, I mean you do feel sorry for her. She felt as if she had been brought down to the grave that this... This is what social death is all about. And all we can say about social death is that there is the hope of resurrection. Verse uh, 8. He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifts up the beggar from the dunghill. That's how she felt. That her prayers to God as she prayed outside the, the sanctuary in Shiloh were, as it were, a beggar on a dunghill begging, begging for mercy. That was the intensity of it. And this uh, actually is quoted verbatim by David in Psalm 113, verse 7. He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifts up the beggar from the dunghill. Again, we get the message that although this is generally pretty unspiritual stuff here from Hannah, yet the spiritual mind of David and later on of Mary will focus upon that which is positive and make it work. And that's actually what Peter and Paul do when they quote Sarah positively. 
uh, 1 Peter 3.6, Peter says that uh, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. When did she call him Lord? When the angel came and said to Abraham, you're going to have a child, and Sarah inside the tent scoffs at that in unbelief and says, huh, shall I have a, a child when I'm so old? My Lord being old also, and I mean she clearly meant my Lord, can't even get it up. Uh, so really, we're going we gonna to have a kid? I don't think so, angel. That's pretty cynical. And yet, Peter focuses on that and says, ah, but she called Abraham Lord. He takes something positive out of a very negative statement, a statement that is rebuked, actually, uh, by the angel. Galatians 4 verse 30 is another one. This is when uh, Sarah chucks out Hagar and Ishmael into the wilderness, and she says some very bitter things. Uh, to to uh, Hagar, and she says, "The son of the of the slave, that's Hagar, shall not be heir with my son Isaac." Now, this is said in uh, well, there's a word beginning with B on the tip of my tongue that I better not say, but you know what it is. Um, it, it seems to me that she, uh, how can I say? I mean, she's really screaming this in the heat of um, a very catty, shall we say, mood and very um, unspiritual sort of attitude to, to Hagar. And yet that's quoted in Galatians 4.30 as inspired scripture. What I'm saying is that even in people, in believers in their less spiritual moments, the way of the spirit is to be positive and to quote positively. That's what I'm saying. And she says, verse 8, uh, that um, she is going to be set among princes to make them inherit the throne of glory. That's a messianic term, Isaiah 22, verse 23. Again, she's got this idea that her son is to be Messiah. Well, he wasn't. He did the anointing, the Messiah-ing, if you like. But he was not himself Messiah. And the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. Look, the world is not a flat plane that's held up by pillars. But that's what she thought. But she, her idea was there's a load of pillars that are holding up the earth, and uh, God has settled that up. So she had a wrong understanding, but the essence of it was that she believed in God. And I think that paves the way for why the idea, the wrong idea of demons is accepted later on in the New Testament that God is willing to accept misunderstanding to some extent. Right, verse 9, um, the wicked shall be silent in darkness. Well, she's just told Penina in verse 3 to be silent. Don't talk proudly anymore. Shut up. Be, be silent. The wicked shall be silent. So she sees this as Penina in darkness. This is a death wish. Nothing less than that. Um, and she says in verse 6 that she effectively, Hannah effectively, has been brought down to the grave, that she has known social death when she was barren, and she kind of wishes that on Penina. The abused abuse. This is a, a cycle that has got to be broken. And frankly, here I see a cycle just continuing, and this is continued by a, a spiritual person. And she says... Um, 
Verse 9, he will keep the feet of his saints. The wicked, which we've shown to be, uh, she thinks is uh, Penina, shall be silent in darkness. But she, Hannah, is the saint. Yes, the pious one, the prayerful one, the spiritual one. Yes, she was some kind of saint. But she made the mistake a lot of saints make of abusing others and doing others as you had done yourself and being spiritually superior. And in verse 10 there, she says that um, out of heaven, God will thunder upon them, upon the adversaries, which we've said in chapter 1, verse 6, her adversary was Penina. Um, yet there's no evidence that there was peals of thunder breaking out on the head of Penina. Twice it's recorded that God did thunder upon Samuel's enemies, with literal thunder. 1 Samuel 7 verse 10, 12 verse 17. So again you see this theme, that the essence of her prayer was heard, but not the letter. And as I say, that is how a lot of our prayers, in the bigger picture, in the long run of life, actually work out. That's why you've got to be careful what you pray for, because in essence you will get it. You may say, ah, oh, you mean if I pray for a million dollars or pounds or whatever, I'm going to get it? Well, unfortunately, yes, you might. But it might not actually be the way you expected or how you expected, etc. So, verse uh, 11. The child did minister. And just notice that, that he's only just been weaned. And the most that he could have been breastfed would be to what, five years old. Uh, as I've seen in Africa, children being breastfed until five, six years old. Uh, and he couldn't have been older than that, surely. And yet, the child did minister. This was still accepted as service to God. And the sons of uh, Belial, verse 12, the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. But in chapter 1, verse 16, that's pretty well what Eli accused Hannah of. And she says, oh, Hannah, uh, Hannah says, oh, don't consider me to be one of the children of Belial. Uh, very hypocritical. And she makes this little coat for him in verse 19 and takes it year by year. <clears throat> and it says in verse 18 that he was girded with a linen ephod. If you look at those words for ephod and coat, wherever they occur together, they occur many, many times together, in Exodus 28 particularly, talking about the high priest. So they were dressing him up as a, high, as a priest, even a high priest. They were unspiritual, they knew it, and uh, I think there's a little, there's more to this coat and ephod than might appear. He's being used as a priest, and why I say that is because in 30, uh, <clears throat> 35, God says to Eli, I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in my heart and in my mind, and I, yeah, there's a number of possibilities of interpretation there, could be talking about Zadok could be talking about David, um, could be talking about Messiah, but I think that one possibility is that it was talking about Samuel. But Samuel was from Ephraim. He was not from the tribe of uh, Levi. And yet God was flexible, it seems to me. God was willing to work through a less than ideal situation. Verse 20 Eli says, the Lord give you seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to the Lord. And uh, there's a word play really because the, some words have two meanings. 
apologies to Jimmy Page, but, um, <clears throat> but they do. Uh, words have two meanings. And the word, the Hebrew word for to loan is also the word for to request. So what she had requested, she loaned to God. Now the implication is that she would get it back. And she would get it back in the kingdom. And that's an idea which is present in the teaching of Jesus in Mark 10, 29 and 30, where he says that if you've given up relationships in this life, you will get them again in the kingdom. And so it is that the, if you like, the nature of our eternal life, how we will sort of uh, be eternally, will to some extent be a returning to us of what we have lent to the Lord in this life. And the less you lend, the less you will get back. And you can lend relationships. You can give up a legitimate relationship for the sake of the Lord's service, but you will get it back. It is a loan to the Lord. So you move on then to uh, <clears throat> the rest of the chapter talking about Eli and his sons. Verse 24, you make Yahweh's people transgress. But in verse 25, you have sinned not against men, but against Yahweh. So to sin against God's people is to sin against God. God is identified with his people. And that is why there is no such thing as being a totally out-of-church Christian, of saying that, yeah, look, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but I've got no time for any other believer. No. Your attitude to your brethren, to God's people, is your attitude to God. And that's taught all through the Bible, and you've got it taught here again. But they didn't listen to what Eli told them, verse 25, because Yahweh would slay them. There's an element to which God forces people down a downward spiral if that's the way they want to go. In the same way, there is an evil spirit from the Lord. There is also a holy spirit. God is willing and able to confirm us whichever way we want to go. So, verse 26, Samuel grew on. Despite all this unspirituality, it's emphasized Samuel grew. Samuel, verse 21, uh, Samuel, the child Samuel grew before the Lord, despite all this unspirituality. So you can't blame your lack of spirituality on a bad environment. Samuel grew spiritually despite all this, and that's confirmed, I think, in 26, where we read that he grew in favor both with the Lord and also with men. That's, of course, quoted about the Lord Jesus in Luke 2, 52. In another figure, Jesus is likened to a green shoot that grows up um, in a dry land with no surrounding encouragement. So there follows now this blistering condemnation of Eli. And yet Eli is presented as a rather nice old man who, you know, has a certain amount of faith and niceness about him and is terribly concerned for the Ark of God and he falls over and dies when he hears that it's been taken. And he rebukes his sons, but okay, he's a bit soft on his kids. Well, we are all a bit soft on our kids. That's part of being a parent, it seems to me. And yet this guy is blisteringly condemned now, what's this to teach us? I think it's to teach us that really and truly you cannot just cruise along in your religious life, ignoring major abuse. 
you've got to do something about it. And if you do not stand up for those people who are being abused, etc., and if you just, in a half-hearted way, try to deal with it, God, God is very angry and even rejected Eli because of this. And of course, he himself benefited from it, because, verse 29, you are making yourselves fat by stealing all the, uh, the best of the sacrifices. And in chapter 4, verse 18, when Eli dies, it is commented that he was a very fat man. So he benefited from all this himself. Simply, verse 29, the best of the sacrifice was to go to God, but they took the best to themselves. And that, again, is a principle that if we did nothing else, we could just think about that for, for hours. The best in our lives is to go to God, not to ourselves. And yet, the problem with trooping along in the religious life, in the denominational kind of life of trooping along to meetings, etc., is that you serve God with your spare time, with your spare money, with what's left over. Rather than giving yourself, of yourself, at the very best to him. And the rest of it, career, uh, work, housing, etc., cars, all that stuff, is all secondary. That's secondary. So then, it seems to me then that God changed his, his purpose here with Eli. Verse 30, he says, I swore that they should walk before me forever, but now I say, be it far from me. So God is responsive to human change. That's an amazing idea. His humanity, the humanity of God, is something quite amazing. In verse 27 he said, Did I not plainly appear unto the house of your father? And the Hebrew word literally means to make naked. I expose myself. This is how close God has come to man. And we cannot just treat that in any way ordinary. Had before us the, the, the bread and wine, which is there the symbol of the Lord Jesus, and yet it was God who was in Christ, not in a Trinitarian sense, of course, but in the sense that all that he suffered, that Jesus suffered in his naked shame, was in a sense what was done uh, to God. 